Thanks so much for being here. My name is Chris Bavitz. I'm one of the faculty directors of the Berkman Center. We're thrilled to have Bruce Schneier here to give our Tuesday lunch talk. A couple quick bits of housekeeping. One is that we are live streaming. If you're in the room and you ask a question at the end, just be mindful that you're going out to the masses over the internet. Um, the second is that if you're interested in issues related to privacy, uh, check out the Berkman Center website for upcoming events. I'm thinking specifically about March 24th. We are hosting, along with some folks at MIT and the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, a forum over at MIT about consumer privacy in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The AG herself will be participating, along with folks from our community. It should be a lot of fun. It's a half-day workshop. Again, that's um, Thursday, March 24th, starting at 8 a.m. Um, over at CSAIL at MIT. Um, without any further ado, I'm just going to turn it over to Bruce. Bruce is, a, a, as I think most of you know, a security researcher and uh, enthusiast and expert and a, a fellow at the Berkman Center, along with wearing many other hats on the board of EFF and an advisory board member of EPIC and the CTO of CO3 Systems, Inc. And as I think you know, his talk today is going to be called, unless it's changed, uh, Security and Privacy in the World-Sized Web. Uh, without further ado, we'll turn it over to Bruce. Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, this is a preview of the talk I'm giving at the RSA conference. The RSA conference demands that it be a new talk never given before. So just don't tell anybody. <laughs> but do tell me. if I, I would love to get comments and feedback and, uh, and tips and hints. So I want to talk about the Internet of Things, which has, depending on how you count, three or four parts. There are the sensors that collect data about us and our environment. And that's like smartphone location data or smart thermostats and light bulbs or Internet-enabled street signs and highways. There's the intelligence in the middle that figures out what the data means and what to do about it. Right, so that's both processing and memory, and that's where I'm not sure if that's one or two parts. And mostly in the cloud these days, memory that never forgets. And then the final part are the actuators that affect our environment. Right, those th smart thermostats set the temperature. I mean, we, we're talking about driverless cars responding to real-time traffic data and steer based on, on their algorithms. Uh, talking about package drone delivery. And I think of these sensors as the eyes and ears of the internet. And I think of these actuators as the hands and feet of the internet. And then the stuff in the middle is the brain. So in that way of thinking, we're building an internet that senses, thinks, and acts, which the last time I looked it up is the definition of a robot. So what I want to propose is that we're building a world-sized robot here, and we don't even realize it. And this is what I'm calling the world-sized web. I'll take comments on the name. Not now. All right, so how did we get here? So let's step back. First, we've built this huge array of socio-technical systems. And I think that's a good word to use. Right? It's a complex, interconnected, social and technical system with a lot of moving parts and a lot of different parties and interests. And these systems aren't just different in scale. They're causing a difference in kind. So you can think of, oh, I don't know, online reputation systems like eBay's feedback, eBay's feedback system, uh, chip and pin credit card authentication systems, uh, modern predictive policing systems, including things like uh, the no-fly list and how they're implemented, electronic voting systems, uh, Bitcoin. Well, some of these socio-technical systems are very large scale. I mean, over 2 billion people have email addresses. One billion Facebook users. Uh, United States, there are one billion credit cards. And more and more getting in, uh, embedded computer chips. Uh, this is an old number, but 6.5 billion total value in Bitcoin. Right? These are real world changing numbers. And what makes modern information age socio-technical systems different is, well, everything. Right? Automation replaces judgment. Right? Algorithms replace people in the thinking part. Scale in a variety of dimensions. Right? More people using them, increase complexity, increase speed, increase frequency, increase distance, decrease cost. Right? All of these affect how they work. 
dramatically increased capabilities in ways I think people don't understand very well. And cameras seeing details from long distances fly in the face of our intuition of when we're private. Right? Ubiquitous surveillance systems that work all the time. Right? All of our phones know everybody who's in this room and everybody who's not in this room. Right? Data aggregation and analysis, I think not talked about at all, is how the data is used, how it's combined, and how these systems never forget which I've talked about and some people have. Right? Incre increased complexity. The complexity of these systems means we have lots of emergent properties, lots of surprises. I'll talk about a little bit about that later. Right? Differences in time. Right? Programmers affecting systems at the different times than the users. I'm thinking of the Volkswagen hack here, where programmers at this time made a change that was affecting things six years later, and nobody remembered it. Increased opacity. A lot of these systems are very opaque to us, where people, no one really understands what the system is doing. We can't predict it. We might be able to explain it. But increasingly, we just describe the systems. And new interactions between systems, new feedback loops. And a lot of these systems are more, are more brittle right? in ways that natural systems or human systems are not. And those are just the differences in the past. Right? Everything is now a computer. Right? Your car is actually a 20 to 40 computer distributed systems with four wheels and an engine. That's what it is. If you think of it as a car, you have it backwards. And this change is happening everywhere in our lives. We're starting to see personal networks, right? wearable devices, medical devices, smart homes, First of the smart thermostats and the refrigerators, and we're talking about light bulbs and other appliances, smart organizations, smart cities, a lot of talk about the energy grid, transportation network, digital government, everything there. And when these systems become as interconnected as they are, they no longer make up a web that we connect to. Right? They make up this new world that we live in, no matter what we do no matter where we go. And I really think we've reached a phase change due to scale and scope, right? that differences of degree are causing differences of kind. That sort of, I mean, I've told you this is the ultimate integration of these socio-technical systems in our lives. We've already sort of experienced with Facebook, right? that we sort of needed to be on it to live a full social life. And I think that was just a small tip of, of what's going to happen. And so when I think about security, I think about securing this massive world that we don't know much about, but that knows everything about us. Right? Increasingly knowing, increasingly intelligent, increasingly capable. And this will result in some new power structures and new power balances. I mean, distributed versus centralized is the obvious dichotomy, but there are lots of others. And these systems are filled with emergent, emergent properties. And I think this is going to be the big surprise. I mean, we're pretty good at predicting technical changes. But we are terrible at predicting social changes due to technical changes. Right? Everyone, about 100 years ago, recognized that cars would make people go faster. No one predicted the modern suburb. Or more recently, just read about what we wrote in the 1990s about the information superhighway. That we got the tech right, but the social completely wrong. Right? And this is the world size web. And, and when I think of this robot, it's more than the Internet of Things. Right? It's smart things that act on the world in a direct physical manner. A combination of a bunch of trends. Mobile, cloud computing, the huge databases of personal information, the Internet of Things, or I actually, I kind of like the term cyber-physical systems. I think that's more general and better. Persistent computing and autonomy, which is being talked about like only in the past few months as artificial intelligence. Right, again, an Internet that senses, thinks, and acts. And I think this transformative technology will force a lot of social changes. 
And where I sit, what I like to think about is how to secure it. And how do we even begin to try when everything is one big, big interconnected system of systems? When you have interconnected threats, integrated, uh, integrated attackers, integrated effects. I mean, I think about all the risks we know just turned up to 11. As long as the new risks from the non-human actors, right, the algorithms, the agents, and then right, the actual robots, which we're seeing more of. Right? I mean, the notion that we can solve our security problems by turning off our computer or turning off our phones is not going to work. And I think there are a lot of vulnerabilities here. Right? In a lot of ways, the security of these systems, right, the complex socio-technical systems, are a war of all against all. That everyone is fighting everyone. Users, hackers, criminals, corporations, governments. And you can see lots of it. Governments attacking users, users attacking governments, corporations attacking each other, Volkswagen corporations attacking regulators. Right? We had the CIA attack the Senate. I mean, just wherever you go, there are these uh, threat vectors. And it's not as easy as here's the defense, here's the offense. Everyone's defending against everybody. And you can't just focus on one threat, although they're not all created equal. They're not all equally problematic. For the person on the defense, they're going to be important. So we're going to have conflicting security. And it's not just privacy. The threats here come in many different forms. This systematic bias in design, the Volkswagen case. Data manipulation, data destruction, you know, cheating and fraud, wholesale or retail, surveillance, right, data denial, censorship, and then various use restrictions and controls. There's a lot of different things happening by a lot of people to a lot of people. Right, so take the, take the modern cars again. I mean, we don't want anyone to be able to use the navigation systems in cars to conduct broad surveillance. We actually don't want them to use the microphones to eavesdrop either, whether they're the Bluetooth ones for your phone or the OnStar ones. We actually don't want companies to bypass emission control limitations through software. And we don't want individuals to be able to do that after they've bought the cars. We don't want hackers to take control of our cars on the road, as we've been seeing in several video demonstrations over the past 12 months. But we might want the police to safely, remotely disable a car, and so on. And what's interesting, I think what's new, is that the integrity and availability threats are now much worse than the confidentiality threats. And you're hearing this from the US government. This is what our Director of National Intelligence, Clapper, has been saying for about a year now. And you're seeing that echoed uh, by the NSA director, uh, Rogers, that the confidentiality threats are, are serious. But once the computers can do things to the world, availability and integrity matter. That there are now real risks to life and property, right? real effects on our lives, not just on our data. And this is going to make things hard. I mean, getting back to, uh, to cars. When we, we actually want self-driving cars. We have the potential to eliminate tens of thousands of automobile deaths per year. But right now, we're looking at serious costs in privacy and tracking. Now, what are the mechanisms by which we can hand over control of our transportation to automated systems without sacrificing freedom of privacy? And that's just one. You could spend an hour on this very example. And so in this world-sized web, rights are going to start butting up against each other. Right? The right to fly a drone versus the right to privacy. It's security, 
versus what law enforcement wants. The right to tinker on the stuff you own versus the risks of you tinker on it a little too much in the wrong way. Right? The fundamental issue of our data individually and our data collectively. Something I spent a lot of time on in, in Data and Goliath. Right? I got here from the airport uh, an hour ago, and, and my, uh, my Lyft driver used Waze. Right? Waze is a great app that gives us real-time traffic information, routed us around hazards, routed us around delays, got me here on time. It only works everyone using Waze is under constant surveillance. And that's a tough one. And there are dozens of those in medicine, in, in various social programs. Right? Our data collectively has enormous value. Our data separately is incredibly private. How do we deal with that? All right, so security is fundamentally an arms race. I think that's the correct way to think of it. And what technology does is it perturbs the, the environment by changing the balance between attackers and defenders. Right? So in this arms race, you have attacker and defender competing, but technology changes the battlefield, often in random ways. Right? Lots of examples of how technology changed the balance. Right? Click the, the, uh, the, uh, a click fraud, right? that, that battle between basically Google and, and click fraudsters. The battle between ad blockers and ad uh, presenters. Right? Credit card fraud has been an arms race for, for decades. Spam is an arms race. Digital rights management is an arms race. Government surveillance is also an arms race. Right? So this has been happening, this arms race. So there I think of three big trends that affect this arms race when I think about securing the world size web. And so the first, which I just touched on before, is that internet socio-technical systems shift power balances. Right? They change the balance of power between different parties. And, and there are all sorts of them. Between governments and the people, we see that a lot all over the world between different industries. Often uh, old versus new, we, uh, we like to paint it, but it's really much more complicated. Between nation states and non-nation states, you know, different types of actors. So in general, the unorganized are the first to make use of new technologies. And so the powerless tend to use technologies first. It, it can be a qualitative change, gives them access to coordination, organization, dissemination, action, and can be really empowering. And some easy examples are the Sopa-Pipa debate, 2011-2012, uh, the Gezi protests in Turkey, the rise of crowdfunding as a mechanism to, to get projects moving. And this kind of thing can invert power dynamics and, and, and it works amazingly well, even in the face of government control. And that's a lot of, of the idealist side of the internet. Right? But that's just half the story, because you've got powerful organizations on the other side. And what, the way I want to think about it is that while technology tends to magnify power in general, the adoption rates are different. So the unorganized, criminals, dissidents, outliers, they're more agile. They can make use of new technologies faster. But traditional power, governments, corporations, have more raw power to magnify. So they're slower, but they're more effective at using new technologies. Right? Lots of examples of this. So, we have this battle here between the quick versus the strong. Right? The quick who can make use of new technologies faster, and the strong who can make better use of new technologies. And, and this is sort of how I see the security versus surveillance battles between criminals and the FBI, 
or dissidents versus the Chinese government. Right? The, the distributor are, are one step ahead, but the powerful are, are much stronger. I mean, right now, the current infrastructure of the internet, the current infrastructures we're building, the centralized infrastructures, favor traditional power. Right? So restrictions on what people can do due to design decisions. Bulk surveillance due to architecture. And this has profound uh, ramifications. I, mean, I think about drone warfare, where really a small cadre of military can keep an entire country under perpetual bombardment with like, no, risk of no risk to them. That is fundamentally different. That is new. We have never seen that before. Now, most examples aren't that spectacular, but pretty much everybody is going to want control and access. Right? And governments and corporations right now have it easier to get. Because we're in a world where bulk surveillance equals power. And so that's the, that's the first trend, this quick versus strong, this, this, this change of power. Trend two, which is not new, is that right now, attack has advantage over defense for a whole bunch of reasons. There's the basic first mover advantage. There's the difficulty of securing complex systems. I mean, very broadly, uh, the attacker needs to secure every part of the system, but the defender just needs one way in. And that imbalance is, is incredibly important as systems get more complex, as there's a bigger surface for the defenders to secure. There's also a natural agility of the attacker, especially of the more dissident attacker, who's not constrained by laws or procedures or procurement or infrastructure. And because of these things, and, and there are others, there's a, a delay between when you see a new attack and when you see an adequate defense. And there is a security gap. There is a gap in time between the attack shows up and the defense shows up. If someone invents a new way of committing credit card fraud, eventually the system figures out how to stop it. But you have that delay. That delay, that security gap, and I wrote about this in my previous book, In Liars and Outliers, is greater when there's more raw technology. So the more technological a society is, the greater the gap is. And it's greater in times of rapid technological and social change. Because right? that agility becomes more important. And today, we're seeing, we're living in a world with one, as more technology than ever before, and two, faster rate of technological change than ever before. Which means the security gap is going to get bigger, again, on average. And it's going to be harder and harder to get security right. Because the time, as soon as we get it right, we, we got it wrong again. And this, this, this loop happens. That's my second trend. The third is catastrophic risks, which I've been thinking more about over the past year. So attack scale, you think of, uh, of different types of attacks, cybercrime, digital piracy, or threats due to 3D printers, or remote espionage bulk surveillance. One of the things that scales with technology are attacks. And, and there's, there's kind of a numbers game going on here. So very broadly, there's a natural crime rate that we in society are willing to accept, sort of due to who we are as a species and how lawful our society is. Right, so there's some, some natural crime rate willing to accept. And there's also some natural crime rate due to basically technology. Right? And there's a difference. And as technology makes each individual criminal more powerful, 
the percentage of them we can tolerate decreases. Right? So if a burglar can rob one house per week, I'm going to make this up, we might be willing to live with 10 of them in our community. Right? But if a burglar can now rob five houses per week, we, we have to only have two burglars to have the same crime rate. And that means, as this technology makes individual actors more powerful, right, we have to be able to deal with more of them, because we can tolerate fewer of them. And this trend of, of increasingly powerful actors becomes more dangerous when you start dealing with catastrophic risks. Because often in, in, in these systems, we're not concerned about the security against the average attacker or the threat posed by the average attacker, but security against the most extreme attacker. And again, back to this town with the burglars, it's actually not you know, two burglaries, five burglaries per week per burglar. There's some nice little bell curve where you have your infrequent burglars and your frequent burglars. Right? And the bell curve moves. It's your frequent ones that are going to become more dangerous. And they're the ones who are going to be doing more. And burglary is an easy one. When you get to things that actually cause damage, this, this gets, gets hard. And I worry both about the reality and the rhetoric. And because the more destabilizing the technologies, the bigger the rhetoric of fear. So if we're talking about nanotechnology or Internet of Things, or being able to print your own gun in a 3D printer, or print your own microbe. Right? These are very scary things. Right? So there's a lot of, I mean, we're seeing, we're trying to see it now. You know, out of the US government, the fear surrounding these integrity and availability attacks. And we saw that in, uh, in um, um, Clapper's uh, brief, uh, threat briefing to the Senate on Sherman's committee uh, a few weeks ago. Right? So there's greater fear, which means there's going to be a greater demand for government to do something. And I think more government involvement in cyber is inevitable. Right? We're seeing more cyber terrorism rhetoric, more cyber war rhetoric. We're going to see more calls for, for oppressive surveillance, oppressive use control. And I think this is going to be a trend that's going to be very hard to avoid. So how do we secure this? How do we deal with this? Well, all aspects are going to have their own security challenges. Mobile security is a thing. Cloud security is a thing. Internet of Things security is a thing. Security of persistent devices is its own thing. Security of autonomous systems is its own thing. Right? There's, there's an hour-long seminar in each of those six topics. But primarily, I think this is a, a policy problem. I mean, we can do technology. And, and, and when I think about technology, I think about, the, about, a, about a collision of, of two different ways of, of doing security. There is the old-school, real-world way of doing it, which is getting it right before you deploy it. Think of aircraft, think of cars, think of medical devices. Lots of work done up front, and then we put it out there. Then there's the internet model, which is we put it out there, then we do some work. And we improve it, we fix it every week. Right? Continuous improvement. This worked great because there weren't a whole lot of real-world consequences if Excel didn't work well. This was important because if Microsoft crashes your spleen, you're kind of unhappy. We're seeing the collision of these two things. And we have to figure out somehow how to get the best of both of those models. We're not going to be able to give up continuous improvement. But I don't think we're going to be able to give up certification and testing and all of those getting it right things either. Right? In 
a driverless car, in a computerized medical device, in any of those things that are both computer world and old school real world. Right? But I really think that we have to think about policy now. I think about law, economics, psychology, sociology, all of the stuff some security people have been thinking about for the past decade or so. Right, the socio part of the socio-technical systems. And the socio part can matter a lot more than the technology. Something we've learned from uh, internet security is getting the economics and psychology right is critical or it doesn't work. You know, email security is a great example. After what? 20 years, no one can still, still, still people can't secure their email. And it's not because the tech doesn't work. Right? Or anti-spam. That succeeds and fails, not on the tech, but on the social and economics of getting people to use systems where they will, not in the backbone. A lot of economics to make that work and also why it doesn't work better. And so the primary lesson of Snowden is that law and technology have to work together. We are living in a world where technology can subvert law and that law can subvert technology. And if we don't get both working, neither work. So the very practical problem is that there really isn't a regulatory structure that exists to tackle this at the general enough level. There's a fundamental mismatch right now between the way government works and the way technology works. Because right? government tends to operate in silos. Right? There are different, different things around by different parts of the government. So in Congress, you have different committees that fight each other over jurisdiction. You have various departments and, and uh, commissions that make up the US federal government, uh, have really separate fiefdoms. Right, agriculture and defense and transportation and energy. And lots of things fall between the cracks. I mean, right now the FTC is taking a big lead in going after basically bad privacy practices. But the FTC can only regulate unfair or deceptive trade practices. If a website says, we're going to take your data and sell it, they can't do anything because nothing was deceptive. You might not have read it, but it was there. Right? They have no authority for harms due to information leakage. They have, you know, they have no authority on any privacy violations unless the company makes false promises. Right? So, and you see this everywhere. Right? The FAA can regulate aircraft. The Department of Transportation can only regulate cars. The FDA regulates medical devices. Right, and so on. But that's not the way technology works. Right? The world-sized web is this freewheeling system of integrated objects and integrated networks. And it grows horizontally. And it destroys all of those barriers. Right? You know, so people and systems that have never previously communicated suddenly are now interoperable. And any solutions need to be holistic, right? They have to work whether the thing is a car or a drone or a phone because they're all computers. And the old world where each agency has its own approach and its own regulation, its own rules, just doesn't work. I mean, already you can have an app on your smartphone that can log health information, another that control your energy use, another that communicates with your car, Right? And just that is a set of functions that crosses four different government agencies. And I haven't even gotten started. Because my, my phone's going to hover soon. I don't know. <laughs> and a lot of these agencies really don't have any expertise in, this issue, in these issues. They're not good at responding. We're seeing some of that. You know, all, some with uh, cars and autonomy, some with medical devices. If big data is being used to influence you as a consumer, that's the Federal Trade Commission. If it's being used to influence you as a voter, that's the Federal Election Commission. 
even though it might be the exact same thing, just the tagline is either buy this or vote that, but it's completely different. Now you use those same technology in the school and suddenly the Department of Education gets involved. And so I think we have huge interest here, and it's going to get worse. I think robotics will have its own set of problems that nobody is really going to be able to, to address well. I mean, right now, if, if I set up a surveillance drone and, and uh, keyed it on the MAC address of your phone and it followed you around all day taking pictures, there's like no one who can regulate that. Because that just falls between the cracks. So I actually think that we need to start thinking about a new regulatory agency. And there's some talk about this. Uh, Ryan Kahlo at the University of Washington Law School has proposed a Federal Robotics Commission, a commission that will look at robotics. I actually think it needs to be broader, because now my definition of robot is broader, like a Department of Technology Policy. You can argue maybe that's too broad, but I'm not quite sure, because to me, computers are going into everything. And it's really the computerization that we need to look at, not the thing that happens. Right? All technology computer technology. There's a lot of precedent for this. I mean, not relatively recently, but you know, in general, new technologies have led to the formation of new government regulatory agencies. Right? Trains did, cars did, airplanes did, radios did, nuclear power did. And because new technologies need new expertise. And we have a lot of new technologies here. Right? The large personal databases, algorithmic decision making, Internet of Things and everything that brings, cloud storage, and then you know, robotics and autonomous agents. And lastly, I want to add catastrophic risks. I think that's going to be something we actually need level-headed intelligent thinking and not just fear. But, you know, I mean, I say this like it's easy, but the devil's in the details, and I don't have any of them. But, but I, I think we need to think about this, because the alternative is we just do this ad hoc and piecemeal. And for a lot of these issues, there's a lot of value government can bring to, to solve problems, because there's a lot that markets won't fix. For a whole bunch of reasons, right? Markets are short-term and profit-motivated uh, profit at the expense of general society. Markets cannot fundamentally solve collective action problems. And I think we actually need a counterbalancing effect of corporate power. And so I present this not as a choice between government or no government involvement. Right? Government is already involved in physical systems. Government is going to get involved in security. So our choice is either smarter government involvement or stupider government involvement. And at the same time, technically, I think we need to start disconnecting systems. If we actually cannot secure complex socio-technical systems, then we must not build a world in which everything is connected computerized, and interleaved. And, and, and these systems are not inevitable. I mean, there, it, we, I feel a sense of inevitability, but it's really being pushed on us by, by a certain narrative. There's a technical elite that is saying, all this will be good. And, and there are lots of other models, local communication models, limits on storage and collection, Systems that don't connect with each other. And I think, probably not now, but soon, we're going to reach this high watermark of computerization and connectivity. That, you know, right now, we're all kind of punch drunk on data. But I think we're going to end up making decisions, conscious decisions, about what to connect and how to connect. Right? And there's some analogy with nuclear power here. In the 70s, we had a high watermark there, in our, really in our use, because it was all positive and no negative. And then we sort of decided that some of this was actually hard. 
And maybe it was better not to have as many nuclear plants. And, and we still have them, but it, it wasn't that massive growth that was predicted in the 70s because some realism set in. And I think we need to start pushing that realism here. We actually need to start changing the fabric of the internet so that evil governments don't have the tools to create horrific totalitarian states. Right? We shouldn't make it easy on them. And, and while good laws and regulations in Western democracies are a really good second line of defense here, I think the first line is going to be less connected systems, less computerization. All right, so here are my main points. The world size web, uh, still out on the name, looking for comments, will change everything, no matter what it's called. Right, more autonomy, more real world consequences, that's important. More catastrophic risks and far fewer off switches. And more power to the powerful. This world size web is less designed and more created. I mean, we try to design these systems, but we are regularly surprised by how they work. And really what we do is we create them and then we observe and channel their behavior as best we can. We try to hang on. And remember that second trend I mentioned in those three trends? Attack is easier than defense. An attacker just has to find one vulnerability to do an incredible amount of damage. Historically, we are terrible at defending against these kinds of threats. Historically, we are very, very good at about panicking over outlandish scenarios involving these kinds of threats. And historically, the panic is much more dangerous to freedom and liberty than the actual threats themselves. That's a bad recipe. This is all coming. It is coming faster than most people think. And that's one of the big themes at Davos last week, how fast these changes are happening. It's coming without any forethought or architecting or planning. And I think we need to get ahead of it. Right? We need security systems as robust as the threat landscape. We need systems that are resilient. We need laws that are technologically invariant that deal with economic and psychological realities as well as tech. Right? I mean, the group of us that's creating this world-sized web needs to make moral, ethical, and political decisions about those, how those systems work. Right? So far, we've lived in a world where programmers have some special right to code the world in the way they want to see it. I'm not convinced they get that special right anymore. Right? We need to somehow merge policymakers and technologists. And as everyone at the Berkman Center knows, that is not an easy thing to do. Thank you. All right, I am up for questions, and you're the first one I saw. No, you are. Oh, there's, there are microphones to questions. Okay. Thanks. Got it. So we'll just do that. Now. Thanks so much for uh, talking to us. So you talk about a world-sized web, but then you're talking about a federal-sized policy prescription. So <laughs> you make an excellent point that I hadn't realized till just now. Yes. So that's mostly the question. But um, you know, given that the debate over cryptography is is domestic and yet has international uh, relevance and that moves in the UN against aut autonomous weapons, for instance, have been toothless. Uh, how do you see that playing out? Not well, I guess. Right? I mean, that's what we learned about the encryption debate, is that uh, we're living in a, a, a world where the tech changes and domestic-only policies have, have limited effect. You know, I think in some ways it'll work better than others. When you deal with things like a medical device or a car, you, it's easier to restrict a technology on a border than it is something totally virtual. So maybe that'll be better. I haven't thought about it as well as I should have. You make an excellent point, which I'll be sure to state when I uh, give this talk again. 
Yes. Um, you've invited a call for um, a potential new name. And the way you see, um, the, how, if I may say so, the genesis of the new name coming from robotics, would, would science and maths not help? Because what I'm thinking of is sort of, uh, and I'm playing on your word, but uh, like robot infinity, because infinity is a sign that goes on forever. And now is a point in infinity. And if you understand the word or in um, uh, metaphysics now, it's a point that goes on forever and ever and ever. So I'm just wondering whether from mathematical symbols um, and perhaps scientific symbols, you'll get the word that you're looking for because it relates to how you see um, the world as being highly interconnected. Let's talk later. That's really interesting. Okay. <laughs> I, can't par I can't process that right now, but that, that's, okay. I think you have something there. All right, let's talk later. <laughs> hey, you have suggested that some systems or things be disconnected, which I could take as either a passive adjective or an active verb. Um, can you give an example? Can you give examples of what y things that you think should be disconnected in either sense of that word? So some it's either disconnected or locally connected. And so is it really necessary for, a for my medical device to be, to be accessible from the entire internet? Or can I just somehow do that locally and more securely? Uh, can uh, cars, for some of the communications, be only short range? I mean, and yes, there are, there are ways to bridge things. But I think the, the idea that we're going to get everything on the big internet is, is backfiring. We saw this with SCADA systems. Right? Maybe that's some of that stuff really shouldn't be on the net. SCADA. Uh, the, uh, I forget what SCADA stands for, the industrial control systems that were never designed for internet connectivity. They're now on the net and lots of vulnerabilities are associated with them. So I think once we start looking at what we need and what works for us, the, and the analogy I think is data. Right? We have the collect it all mentality because data collection storage is cheap and there really has been no backstop against collect it all. When you get right down to it, this is just what we need. And we only need it for this amount of time. And I think that we're going to have the same kind of analysis with, uh, with more active control systems. Bruce, uh, thanks very much for the uh, thought-provoking talk. Quick comment on the name and the question. The comment is, uh, I'm not sure what the difference between world-size world web and, the, and World Wide Web, the Tim Burns League. I know, but Web 6.0 just sounded so stupid. <laughs> My question is, putting your technologist and computer scientist hat on, how close are you to, uh, how close are we to being able to say something about are we secure enough in a given context of an application? I mean, the FDA example you gave relies on medical trials, you know, which are well uh, understood, at least relatively well understood. How close are we to being able to make similar statements in a security context? Uh, probably never happen. So, I mean, there are sort of two ways we do certification. We certify the thing, right? We've put the thing through rigorous testing. We know what it does or doesn't do. Or we certify the creator of the thing. In, in most engineering disciplines, not computer science, but real engineering, engineers go through certifications. Right? You can't build a skyscraper unless you've got a certificate that says, I know how to build skyscrapers. Right? And, and we do that for a lot of our critical systems. So. Because I think we're very far from being able to make statements about the object, we have to make statements about the people and the processes that create it. And that we can do. Now that, I mean, that's again you know, the old world versus new world. I mean, this, is, this is the old world of building aircrafts, building cars, building buildings. Not the new world of building software, where anybody can do it. We do it fast, we do it sloppy, we fix it later. Right? Uh, but this is not going to work when you've got you know, 10 million driverless cars on the road. It's, it's just not going to work. And, and government won't let it work. So we need to figure out how to bring stuff from here in a way that doesn't screw this up too much. Because you know, while it would be bad for you know, Microsoft to crash your spleen, it would be equally bad for you know, Microsoft never to be able to come out with you know, spleen 1.0. And because of all the benefits. So I, we have to get both somehow. By virtue of proximity to the mic holder. Oh. Oh, that's so cheating. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, so 
there's this, it seems like there's this mismatch between things that are, be, innovation that's happening in the computer, software, internet realm that's in the private sector compared to stuff being done that, you know, 50 years ago would have been like, you know, public Department of Defense or, um, you know, National Science Foundation kind of stuff. So how do you keep the regulators of this stuff from just being handpicked right out of the private sector and writing the laws that they like? Because who else is qualified to inform yeah, that stuff? I, so, so the problem of regulatory capture is, is I think, bigger than this. Yeah, I don't know. But I think if we don't try, we'll, we'll never get it right. I mean, you're right. I mean, that democratization is, is real important. The notion that what used to be a massive government project becomes something that a big corporate Google can do, something a startup can do, to something that you, know, you can do in a high school science fair. And, and that, that flow down of capability, I think, is a real worry. And, and I don't know how to build a regulatory structure that doesn't get captured. But that, that seems like a bad reason to give up. Hey, Bruce, it, um, you're talking about what links everything, and it almost sounds like you're arguing for a ministry of information as a regulatory body. Put it out there, but um, my question to you is: You mentioned in the analogy of the the community crime rate, and how quite quite accurately, and I love the analogy that the more powerful your bad actors are, the fewer of them you can tolerate. But I wonder if there's a competing process, which is the driver behind networking all these things, like why we need to link your car to your heart rate to your drone, et cetera, et cetera. Which is that theoretically, this is all generating community benefit, whether you want to measure that in dollars or um, units of hedonism or you know, whatever. So there might be some balance point where we say, well, yeah, we have robbers that are more powerful, but it's still okay because everybody's got more stuff. I mean, that's really weak, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think, you, I think that, that is right to some extent. And this is that the benefits of, of putting stuff together is so great. And, and, and the example I always like to think about are, is medical information. That our, all of our medical information in one big database is incredibly valuable to the point where you might you know, make it illegal for someone not to be in that database because it becomes a public health hazard for them not to be part of this. But now how do I build this so that only the right people have access for the right purposes. Right, so here's this benefit. You've also got increased bad actors, but it really feels unbalanced to be a, a no-brainer. And some of those are harder. Bruce, I'm just wondering what you think is the optimal role of regulation in this world. Is it to try to certify that the thing is not going to cause harm? Is it to certify the thing is good, to, find, to thoroughly examine it so it doesn't have unintended second or third order cause? Like, what is the harm that a government could reasonably try to protect against? It's a good question. I, and I don't think it's going to be, though, those more restrictive cases. I think we have to be, if, I mean, right now, I think we need a strong advisory role. Just because all of these agencies are running into the same tech issues and just don't have the expertise. I think there's going to be some role in certification of people and process. And I think there will be something in, in limiting the speed of, of, of adoption of things. I mean, the, the, uh, the FDA is an interesting model. I mean, the, the, the amount of time and money they make drug companies spend before they release a new, a new pharmaceutical because of potential to do, to do you know, harm to people's lives. I mean, that's one extreme. You know, we on the internet are used to the other extreme. So I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle. You know, somehow, you know, but a lot, I mean, this is where the, also the tech flows in. Right? I need to build a system that's resilient to the bad actors. I mean, I, if I have a system of driverless cars, it cannot assume that every driverless car is, is honest. It has to be resilient to evil driverless cars. Because there will be. Or there'll be cars with drivers, which are probably worse. Right? So right, I, I, I think I need government to step in and do some of those collective action problems. 
Right? It's everybody's best interest to do this, but we all together want to do that, so that has to be the rule. Because otherwise you just never have, you never get to the optimal answer because everyone's at their individual maximum. So any of those prisoner dilemma issues. And sort of, that's sort of in my head when I think of you know, what government is good for as a macro, that's what it's good for, solving collective action problems. Hey, Bruce. Uh, thanks so much for the talk. Um, lots of interesting points. Um, one of the things um, that you actually just sort of started to touch on that I thought might be interesting to explore is um, the idea of smart failure states. And so I'm just sort of curious um, whether some of these things, like instead of saying we have a thermostat that's only connected locally or a local spleen, that we have an easy way to disconnect the spleen from the network, right. or if the spleen um, gets like diddled with, then we can it just goes into a safe state or something like or, that. Or, or something, uh, I mean, John Zittrain suggests something called, something called Faraday mode, that everything should operate if it's not connected. I mean, right now, if you try to operate your computer not on the internet, it's actually very hard, which seems wrong. You should be able to do things like that. So, yeah, I think there's a, we really think about how to fail safely. I read a piece by uh, Robin Chase who talked about how a driverless car should have a button, because in the future they'll have no steering wheel, no local control, button that says basically stop safely. You push the button and everything else disconnects and the car goes to the side of the road and stops so people can get out. And something like that seems like a really good idea as these systems become more autonomous. And uh, I guess as a follow-up to that, if we have really good smart failure states, if it's quick and easy for us to rebuild a server on Amazon Web Services in 10 minutes, does that mean we just don't have to worry as much about our attack vectors, or should we still be um, focusing on both, or is it better to focus on the attack well, vectors? So, so some, some go away, right? And, and this is just one of the defensive, one of, the, one, of the, one of your defenses is recovery. You can recover fast. A whole bunch of attacks no longer matter. But attacks that you know, involve cars crashing do matter. So some attacks will go away. I mean, so I mean, I'm perfectly happy to make entire classes of attack disappear through design. But there'll still be some that'll remain. And as these things hit the real world, right, dropping, you know, turning off all thermostats and, and Best more where I live than here, but I guess here too last weekend, uh, right? Everyone's pipes freeze and burst. Right? Bad attack. But something possible when all thermostats are on the internet being controlled remotely. Uh, Bruce, I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about the, the tension between the government's role on offense versus defense. And in particular, you know, if we think about, you know, breaking down the silos between uh, government agencies, uh, it seems like there could be a potential that, that, the gov that if, let's say, the offense, uh, uh, th those who believe that offense is more important than defense in cybersecurity uh, might you know, allow, uh, you know, rather than, than helping coordinate uh, fixes to problems across the entire, you know, landscape might actually allow vulnerabilities to persist in a way that that, that the current siloed approach might actually be beneficial to preventing. Yeah. I think that's a really good point, I and mean, that's really what I was trying to say in that catastrophic risk trend. That that the the, the rhetoric of fear, the need for more repressive measures is going is going to push government on that side, and and. I don't think there's an easy answer here. I mean, I mean, defense seems like the obvious answer, but that's going to be harder as the uh, the rhetoric of fear grows. So it it is really be it's going to be very dangerous for us to uh, to rely on offense because you know we're just I think we're just way more vulnerable than than attack permits. I suspect we'll get this right. I mean this. Society has dealt with this kind of thing before. It just takes us a couple of decades. And I really see an ugly couple of decades until we, until we fix some of this stuff. And that's going to be part of it. But yeah, that's a really, that's, that's a good thing to, to add. Yeah. If you're talking about one or two 
Hi, Bruce. Uh, Mary Madden. It's nice to finally meet Hi. you um, up with the Data and Society Research Institute, but formerly of the Pew Research Center. Um, I just wanted to bring up um, the point and fabulous talk um, that you um, you use the lens of the Internet of Things um, to, to talk about the ways in which um, a lot of these vulnerabilities are going to become manifest in sort of real real mm -hmm. risks. And I think you're absolutely right that in terms of the impact on um, policymakers and the kind of conversation around fear um, that that will have when people sort of physically see that impact. Um, but I just wanted to push back a little bit um, on the part in your talk when you are saying, you know, now we're moving to real risks, not just around our data, but to our, our property and our, our physical well-being. Um, to just point out that a lot of what you talk about in the beginning about the vulnerabilities of these internet-connected systems also plays into vulnerabilities, um, you know, around the decision making that comes out of, you know, predictive policing and, sure. um, you know, systems that are making job related decisions or whether or not people are getting into college. And so um, the scale of the impact of those decisions, I think, can be felt in ways that um, still are hard to make visible, um, but I think yeah. are one of those magnified. That's really good. That's, right. Yeah. Important. Yeah, the, 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 I think alg algorithmic decision making, the opacity of algorithms is, is a big trend in here that I'm kind of ducking and weaving around and not making explicit. But yes, I think, it's, I think that's huge. And that's a really good point about these algorithms making decisions that have very real, real world consequences the people they affect. That's, that's, that's For the policy solutions right. too, maybe increased transparency or insistence right. that these companies reveal some of the proprietary methods for creating these algorithms. Right, I government think. services, yeah. yeah. Bruce, uh, when you were talking, who's, who's talking you <laughs> <laughs> when you were talking, you mentioned um, some points that makes me think in the equation between social knowledge, control, and access. This is an equation that nobody okay. knows how to mix it and how to balance it. And also you mentioned um, some institutions and organizations that uh, societies have created for control. And in general, your, your speech made me think that you are proposing a vertical model where uh, we need some institutions, organizations, or groups that control, in general, what is happening uh, on the Internet, and especially for the good of everybody. I... Um, my question is this, have you thought in a less vertical, more horizontal, and more um, individual self-empowerment model where people can act and can make part of the, of the critical matter, critical uh, group, uh, especially in a world that it's, where, where there is a huge incoming and very strong trend where people are tired of, of, of uh, institutions that control everything, but at the same time shows very, very corrupted in, inside. So I, I tried to make that point when I talked about the need to, de de to decentralize. So I'll have to make that point stronger. Because I actually believe that you're fundamentally right that the future is going to be something with more decentralization, with less central control with more individual control. I think that's going to be uh, the only way to make this work. But now how we have to figure out how to temper that with we don't want an individual to be able to ruin it for everybody. So how do we get that both to get both those to work? I don't know, but I think you're right that, that the centralized control is part of the problem. The fact that the architecture has now been built for centralized control, right? Facebook is replacing you know, a million websites. Google is replacing... 100,000 ISPs is part of the problem. So, so I do think you're right, and I'll try to make that clear when I do this again. Let's take one last one. I'm going to run up here and hand off the mic, and then we'll wrap it up. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce, for your talk. Um, a couple points on what you mentioned. I, I wanted to say I've, I feel like the solution, I mean, capitalism is going to fall. Like We might as well get ready for something else. And that the solution is in open source technologies, which is like, um, everyone has access to it and you can see it and like confirm with each other there's no back doors. Also more like self-governed or self-empowered like yeah like small local networks like you upload 
even if you upload content, it's still on your own server. So when you take it down, it's like you're in control of it. And when you were talking about the like medical records example, like having, um, you know, we want the collective knowledge of everyone's records, but how can you keep it private also? And I think the keywords there are consent and anon anonymous. So having if your if your information is in the collective. Everyone can see it, but you remain anonymous, and then you. Yeah, but if you have the plague, we kind of want to know who you are. <laughs> well, kind of yeah. do. Um, yeah, I mean, and then the, I, I, we get it, but it's the plague, and yeah, it's bad I, that you're sitting here. And we, sorry. I have my final comments. I just wanted to throw out some uh, local events that are happening um, in the coming weeks on this issue. Um, every, every month, um, we host crypto parties in Somerville. You can come and bring your computers and learn about how to encrypt stuff and how to be safer on the internet. And it's, it's just like a safe space to ask these kind of questions, continue this kind of conversation. Um, if you want more information, you can talk to me about it. Or go to cryptoparty.in slash Boston. Um, the next one's on the 24th of February, 6 to 9 p.m. And also next month in March um, is Libra Planet, um, the 19th and 20th. It's an annual conference on open source technology. Edward Snowden is going to be the keynote speaker. Um, so definitely check that out. Um, Libra, Libra Planet is um, in Cambridge. It's at the. It's it's like Somerville, only closer. <laughs> thanks. All right, thanks everybody for being here. Thank you. Thank you.